Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, uh, Ben Myers of uh, Bullpen Research and Consulting. I'm a market researcher, and we have another market researcher here with us today, co-host for this episode, Jeannie Shim. Hi, my name is Jeannie Shim. I'm president of Housing Lab Toronto, an independent housing market research and advisory firm. And I'm also founder and CEO of Crosswalk Communities. We're a new not-for-profit affordable housing development company. Thanks for having me here, Ben. That's awesome. I didn't even know the second part. I wasn't sure if you had officially announced the new uh, venture that you were involved in. So yeah, super excited. So I'm also excited about the sponsor of the Toronto Under Construction podcast, which is BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. Well, if you like the show, please support our sponsors. So we have a fantastic guest here today. Jeannie, do you want to take it away with our, our, our biography? Yes, I want to introduce you to Jacob. He is a co-founder and managing partner of Kin Capital Partners. As an experienced real estate financier, investor, and entrepreneur, he co-leads the advisory arm that has placed around $1 billion of equity and debt on transactions valued around $3 billion since founding the company in 2020. Under the investments arm of the group, Jacob was involved in over 20 investments in ground-up developments and value-add projects throughout North America with a compilation value of $3.5 billion. Prior to founding Kin Capital Partners, Jacob founded KSM Group, a private equity and asset management company investing in real estate-related businesses and technology ventures across North America. Jacob is a known advocate for giving back to the community, serving as the chair of the U40 Real Estate Division and Executive Committee member of UJA, and he also co-founded Trell, a Toronto-based not-for-profit real estate network with over 3,000 members that leads and raises hundreds of thousands for various charitable organizations. So welcome, Jacob. Thank you. I think you should have a career in radio at some point <laughs> once you're done consulting. See, I, think see, it's, you know, I think it's brilliant. That was, that was fantastic. Um, Good job, Gene. So, Jacob, yeah, how, how, do you, how do you say your last name? I didn't uh, want to butcher well, it. Well, I'll tell you. It's an Israeli name. Uh, it has um, like a chet. <laughs> so it's hard for Canadian. Uh, so I take it easy on them, but you basically pronounce it iftach. Iftach. Yeah, okay. it okay. wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. So yeah. let, 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 let's jump into it. I know that uh, I was just telling Ed and Jeannie, the first time I met you, I was like, oh, this guy's a BS artist. Right. He's got all these <laughs> gigantic plans to invest billions of dollars in real estate. And, uh, and, uh, and, and you just kind of burst onto the scene every event I went to you're at. So let me tell us your story. I, I understand you're an immigrant to Canada. You you and uh, and you have a lot of connections overseas. So so give us give us the uh, kind of the bigger backstory that wasn't in the biography. Right. So um, 
So I, I, I got to Toronto by fluke, basically. Like, um, I was born and raised in Israel in a, in a small town in a place called the Kibbutz, which is like a, a tiny little place in, in Israel, like not too far from Tel Aviv. Um, and never had any plans to come to Toronto, but um, I kind of, I, I had a high school sweethearts and then, um, you know, moved to Canada. And when I finished my service in the army, uh, I called her up and she said she's not coming back. So, you know. <laughs> I said, fuck it. I packed my bag and I came here. Um, and that was it. Uh, and uh, when I got here, you know, I was 22. I didn't know anything. I, I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't have any money with me. So we were basically young and broke. And um, she was a full-time student. And at that time, I was like, okay, so what do I want to do with my life? Um, I always had attraction to finance. I was reading things on my own. I, would, I was always very interested in that side of the world. Um, you know, and it, as, you know, as a Jewish guy, Israeli guy, you know, real estate is something that you, you know, it doesn't vanish in a financial crisis. It's always there. So it's like there was always an attraction. And and thank God, like, you know, in Toronto, the, the you know, the real estate community is like, you know, by and large, like probably 40% Italians, 40% Jews, and, you know, 20% others. <laughs> and the others are probably like like the kids and the grandkids of the, of the Italians or the Jews. So it's just, it's really... Um, it's really kind of lucky that that way that I, I was able to play to my angle and I, I wanted a career in real estate and I hustled my way through and uh, I started sending emails to people to get unpaid internship um, and one of them answered my call and, you know, he was in the resi side on the brokerage uh, and I helped him set the infrastructure and I was, that turned into an internship and, uh, and he was partner with my current partner at King Capital. Um, on a few small deals, on a few triplexes and those type of things. Um, and we got connected and, and Gali at that time um, left her position as a CEO of, uh, of Fishman, who used to be a big landlord here in Canada. Um, and she kind of taught me the ropes and we started working together and um, I started hustling and I started doing investment banking before I knew it was called investment banking. <laughs> and it was mostly in the U.S. at the beginning, just by pure luck, nothing planned. Uh, and we placed a few hundred million bucks um, in, in equity, in corporate debt, in various type of um, structures. And um, at some point we were talking and saying, well, we got to make it a thing versus just one off, right? Um, and it, January 2020, we, we founded King Capital, um, which was great timing. Uh, <laughs> so, we had, so we had two months together in the office and then that was it. But we knew that that was our opportunity. And I think we took a, a very, uh, we positioned ourselves, we were take advantage of that opportunity. And, and during that time, we were, um, we were kind of um, doing the sale of uh, Elad Canada. That was a very very large transaction um it was a company that has seven million square feet of commercial across the u.s and, and canada and they bought they took down a gel and reed and um they had the galleria mall and, and lensing square at the time and um very you know a, a robust transaction that took a lot of our time but that was kind of something that put us on the map because that was kind of our first burst to the scene as King Capital. Um, we've, we've also worked with a few other developers setting up their um, their anchor investors and the fund and structuring a few other notable transactions. So we've, we basically launched King Capital 
you know, similar to the way Blackstone was launched with an advisory business that was used to fund what will become an investment business. And, um, and that what we did, like we, I think in the first two years we've, we placed, you know, call it about a billion to a billion and a half worth of equity and debt. Um, and that helped get us started. Um, I didn't have any, you know, not that it's bad, but I didn't have like parents that could say, Oh, here's, Here's some money, go invest. So I had to build up. And, and the investment banking really enabled me to see how people think, how they execute, and to kind of, you know, knows everybody's business in a sense. And you kind of, you become a little bit more educated and develop an instinct as an investor because you kind of see what, what was done right, what was done wrong. You have a more robust approach. You're not looking at things from like a single length type of, um, type of developer. Like you don't you have a wide range of, of things that you look at. So um, we've we kind of we've executed on the first part of the plan and um, and the second part of the plan was executed uh, in basically um, call it March of 2021. We've executed a partnership with a publicly traded company out of Israel um, called Mivtach Shamir. Um, very reputable large um, public traded company that is effectively a, a family office that took their holding public. So they're investing in infrastructure and energy, real estate, um, financial um, uh, platforms and, and technology. Um, and they had a similar, somewhat similar platform that they've done in Israel. They've executed very well there. Um, and for a good couple of years, we've been trying to convince them to set up a Toronto operation and I think there was a time you know about two years ago or a year and a half ago where the rates were basically zero and their platform in Israel was very challenged with the competition of very cheap cost of capital across the board and they saw the returns that we have here in Canada and they were like holy shit why are we wasting our time um, because they like to put things into context so how know, did you uh, step yeah. back how did you yeah. get uh, you know how did you yeah. get connected with the with this Pension fund. Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're a public trade company, but um, we we obviously have a very good relationship in the Israeli capital market. We've done a bunch of transactions there, um, and we're Israeli, so it's... And, 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 and <laughs> everyone Israel, knows everyone. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not like you have like a massive... Like, there is like five large institutional investors, there are like 20 mid-sized, and there is like maybe 30 more that are called smaller size. So it's like a tiny little market, but has a lot of capital in it. Mm -hmm. And the cost of capital, generally speaking, in Israel is that much cheaper because unlike the, um, the Canadian real estate where uh, the institutional market is much more evolved in a sense that, you know, you know, Omer's bought Oxford, right? Like they have now an international platform that they can deploy capital into their real estate bucket with no constraints, almost with no constraints, right? Uh, the Israelis haven't figured that part out, right? So they're very, <laughs> they're very much locked. It's very hard for them to do direct deals because everything takes months to approve. So they can't do a lot of direct deals. When they try to do, they do either private equity funds, which is also, they have a cap on it, so they can go much larger than what they, what they need to deploy. Um, and really the only way for them to invest in a meaningful way is through the fixed asset. I think Israel is 
maybe the third largest bond market in the world, despite you know its country size. There is tons of capital flow to the institutional investors from the savers. I think like 20 or 25 cents out of every salary go to these, to these guys. And there's only kind of what, call it five or 10 of them. So it's like a lot of cash every month sit on their hands and they don't have the infrastructure to deploy it in a meaningful way uh, globally. So what happened is, mid-sized developers in Israel, they, they don't raise private equity from high worth or family offices. They just go to the public market and raise unsecured debt against their profits, wow. their future profits. And their cost of equity is effectively, you know, at times cheaper than the cost of construction financing. So when, when our partners in Israel invested, they always invest with smaller tier investors, uh, developers. Um, and so they take a higher risk on the sponsor and they go to treasury markets, right? Within Israel. Uh, and when they came here, they saw these massive guys that, you know, a lot of them, you know, are in the billions, right? Of the net worth. Uh, and they always take capital partners and they always, you know, offer you the same type of return. 18%. And Canada is one of the fastest growing, you know, G7 countries out there as well. Especially 100%. Toronto. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. getting like, a, you know, you get the, the fundamentals of emerging market within a context and especially what's going on right now in the world and in Israel, especially, you know, the world is unstable, mm-hmm. like generally speaking. And here we might not have the, you know, the sharpest tool in the shed as a, you know, from a government <laughs> perspective, but, but... We're well, okay. Yeah, you know? Well, Canada, that's how Canada's perceived, right? I mean, yeah. I got into the real estate market over 30 years ago in 1992 right. uh, on the tail end of a bad recession. And I remember what started the market in the mid-90s, the pre-construction, was condos in North York and Scarborough. And you probably wonder why. It was flight capital from Hong Kong because a handover of Hong Kong was coming um, to China. So a lot of that money saw Canada as a safe haven. So we had, that was our first actually early wave of kind of people kind of emigrating to Canada, becoming citizens and kind of fueled the start of our condo market way back in the mid-90s. Yeah, it was and, taller buildings in the yeah. suburbs than downtown Toronto. Yeah, right? yeah. And since then, we've seen waves, right? Due to kind of, you know, uh, yeah. global events and money coming to right. what's perceived as a safe place. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell yeah. you, like, yeah. um, obviously the winter is not the strongest suit of Canada. Yeah. Like, so, you know, people don't say, oh, I love the winter, I want to move there. But I'd say from any other aspect, like... Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to choose where I want to raise my my kids. I have family back home. I have, I have a brother in Europe. Like I've, you know, I have a bit more global context of what's going on. I don't, I don't think there's a better place to raise a family. Like with everything that's going on in the world, like I don't think there is a better place to raise a family than Canada. And if you're in Canada, and you don't speak French, you either go to Vancouver or you go to Toronto. And if you really want to grow and scale, there's only one place you want to go. And and I think the advantage that Toronto has over a lot of other places is that it doesn't matter where you come from in the world, like whether you're coming from Southeast Asia or you come from the Middle East, or you come from Africa, or you come from Europe, there, you have a community here. You have a cousin, you know a guy, there's somebody to know. <laughs> like, there's, you want to, you know, everything is like, it was built on immigrants, mm-hmm. right? And, and I think we're, I think the, the beauty that um, that I found in Toronto um, when I came here is that you know the small town mentality still exists in, yes. many, in many of the of the people that have built the city because the transition was so fast. It was so fast. Twenty years ago, none of it had none of it was here. No. And these guys were here for 40, 50 years, 
And all of a sudden, 20 years, boom, it's a different world. And we got Drake now. And we got <laughs> and the Raptors won a champion. Like all, all of a sudden, we're like a brand name. You know, I, I remember like when I moved here and I used to talk to like American investors, like the institution, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm up in Toronto. I was like, well, where, where's that? Where's, where's, that? Uh, where's that? Like, where's Canada? It's up north, right? It's like the, but now it's a whole different ballgame. Now, because we became such an attractive place to leave, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know, unless you want to go to fucking Australia or like New Zealand, be far from everything. You, Canada is really the only place. Like the U.S. is messed up. It has a lot of challenges. Europe is messed up, has a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. If you want to have a brighter future for your kids, you come here. Mm -hmm. And and that really what drives everything around our, our real estate industry. Like yeah. at the core, mm -hmm. you can't manufacture people. People are what drives real estate demand on every asset class that you can think of and even office that is getting beaten down guaranteed that you know five more years ten more years of growth of population like that with hungry immigrants that want to grow these offices are going to get filled up yeah you yeah. know so I'm, I'm very very bullish on toronto and I, and I got lucky to be here in the middle of this perfect storm yeah. where you know i, I think the yeah I, Let's get yeah, so let's yeah. let's just talk about KSM. Yeah, so yeah. you well you had this business before Kin. Uh, so what happened with that? Is that still an ongoing concern? Yeah, that, that's my holding company, and you know oh, okay. that's how I hold all my assets and my my investments through okay. KSM. Um, and it's managing you know whatever the, it's the infrastructure that enables me to to do the things that I do. Um, and Kin Capital is you know very much aggressive on growth right now. We have, I think this is our time in a way. Mm -hmm. Like the, the bigger players in the market are still not back full on to play offensive right now. They're still, first of all, they don't need to take that much risk. They, they've made so much money over the past 30 years. They don't need to, they have some challenges, you know, some have more or less uh, in within their portfolio. Um, are there the, any particular areas where you're being aggressive? Any secrets you want to share? Yeah, like, um, <laughs> like there's no secrets. You know, like, honestly, like, there's nothing secret about Toronto real estate. Like everybody. any particular areas, though, or asset classes yeah, that say, you're I'd bullish that, on? I'd say that you know we're more focused on resi. That's our core. That's where we think we can generate alpha. That's that's where I can look at a performer and within in a, in a site and within like two seconds I'll know if I like it or not. Mm -hmm. And then I can dig through it and say it's a good deal or not. Uh, I don't think I have better context than that in any other asset class. Over time we'll expand, but for now this is this is a lot mm -hmm. of it is our focus. I'd say we have um, we have like three main strategies that we're now kind of pursuing. One is a little bit longer term, which is revolving around land. I think buying guns on land today, mm -hmm. great time. Uh, as long as the cost basis is is good and if I think now we can find a lot of those interesting structures. I know that you guys have talked a lot about um, structures in your event, about VTBs. Like these were things that were not existent a year and a half ago. Like you would try to try to buy a piece of land a year and a half ago. They'd say 30 and 30 at best, right? And put down a 5 million deposit or whatever. And, you know, and by the way, and by the way, the big developer offered me like, you know, hundred million dollars, you should probably pay me 105, otherwise yeah. I'll go with a big guy. Yeah. And now you're, you find yourself like at times, like the only, yep. you know, the only group talking the only to this The only brave one out yeah. there. Um, it's not about bravery. I just think that, you know, as long as you don't have to meet the market in call it the next year to two years, that mm -hmm. might be 
more challenging than what people think, but mm-hmm. might end up like Toronto real estate a blip and nothing else well, getting a rezoned is going to take at least two years so. right so but so <laughs> if i have low leverage and i can yeah, carry it yeah. through yeah. uh and then my cost base is good and we know the math of what would be a residual value for a piece of land if somebody would sell this building for 1500 bucks a foot or 1400 mm-hmm. bucks a foot mm-hmm. so we kind of know how to to understand what and also what the need of the developer right like a lot of the developers have private equity real estate funds that are dedicated. And if they're not using it, they're losing it. They're going to use it. Yeah. So their cost of capital is locked. I think the biggest challenge of people that don't have private equity funds is that now try to convince an investor to put in money with an 18% uh, IRRs or 20% IRR. It's a much harder argument to make mm-hmm. because you used to you used to be able to, um, to say, look, if I'm investing in real estate, I can get 5% if I put in a first mortgage. I can get 9% if I put in a second. And I'll get a 18 to 20 if I'll put in equity. Great. That sounds like a good deal. Mm-hmm. But the world has changed. You can get 9 or a 10 if you put it first. You can get like 12 to 15 if you put a second. Why would you take an equity risk for an 18? The private equity guys have locked their cost of equity. So they can still compete. They can still pay those, you know, not older prices per se because the sales prices have been impacted, but they can still be much more competitive than most. So I think land overall, now it's the time for us to shine and do as much as we can. Where are you buying land? Uh, Anywhere we, in particular? We like Toronto. We like Toronto. Like 416 or, or 915? 416. Or 905? Tell us about the first deal. Rutherford. So outside the 416. So give yeah. Us, give us the, it's give actually, us. I saw the article in Blogto this morning. It made me smile. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, Rutherford was our first deal in our new vehicle together with the Israelis. And uh, yeah, obviously, I had a really good relationship with the Almadev, which is the previous Allied Canada. We we were representing the, the new owners that were buying the company, and I worked very closely with the CEO uh, for the majority of the, the pandemic. Like, we were yelling each other at the phone. <laughs> uh, we had a lot of fun, though. Like, it was one of the craziest but most fun experiences that I had. And, um, and, I, and I saw this deal. It came to us uh, through a friend of mine that had it under contract, but it was a large deal. That was $140 million. Uh, piece of land. Um, Only 3,000 units. Yeah. Was that your biggest deal? <laughs> uh, no, we, we have actually another one in Markham that we've, that we've invested in. Um, uh, we didn't end up, like we were not as involved in that on the, on the front end, but we end up investing in, in Markham that I think would be a bigger in terms of size mm-hmm. just because the land is bigger there. It's 17 acres versus 10 here. Um, so I think there's going to be, it's going to be, Nice. Either way, it's like massive. Yeah. But I kind of knew that the new ownership was looking for a new deal to put uh, to put into play after they bought the the company, um, and I knew that you know I knew that we're all familiar with the area uh, given the proximity to you know Thornhill and a lot of the Jewish centers of the of the city. So um, <laughs> it's not like out in the boonies. And and you know to, to credit to Eli Canada when I. Under, when I underwrote their business, when I were going through the sale, like I understood the power of master plan communities, um, and they understood it way before anybody else talked about master plan communities. Uh, you know, when they bought um, what now is Emerald City, thirty-five hundred units, right? That was in Toronto eyes, in Toronto developers' eyes, like Shepherd and Own Mills would be perceived in the boonies, right? It yeah. was like this is like what are you, what is these guys doing, right? <laughs> they ended up buying an apartment building complex for seven cup. I think they sold it fairly quickly after, and end up with all the land for free. 
And, and they built in it because they have a global context. So they understand what it means and they bet long on Toronto. So every time, you know, the construction financing came to the next phase, the land value, the residual land value of that just went up. Yeah, and they end course, up getting yeah. money instead of putting money into these yeah. deals because <laughs> there, there was a residual land value. Yeah, in it. Yeah. And I said, how smart it is to be betting long on Toronto. Mm-hmm. Fix your cost of land, like real estate to this date, even with everything that's going on in the world, nobody's like, I think golden real estate, probably yes. the best asset class historically to hedge against inflation. I don't think that's changing. No. And I think if anything, it's more in a context of a city like Toronto that experienced the growth that we're experiencing. So betting long in Toronto is something that I learned really from this transaction and I kind of applied and I, I saw the deal in Rutherford and I thought the cost base there is amazing and we end up getting a great structure. Uh, don't forget at the time that we were start talking about this deal or, or end up closing this deal, the market already started moving, yeah. right? Like interest rate were starting going upwards. Mm-hmm. People were starting putting their pencils down. So we got lucky that we started deploying capital in the, call it the, you know, Q2 to Q4 of last year mm-hmm. because- we were the only one at table. Yep, yep. In a normal year, doing like five deals in that span of time, like wouldn't cause no news to anybody. Like every developer would do at least five deals at that span of time. Yeah. But we were the only people that were doing deal at that span of time because nobody else did anything. Mm-hmm. So it caught a lot of attention. Um, but again, like if I were to deploy capital a year before, I think we'd be seeing some challenges across our portfolio right now because we would be closer to meeting the market and we would be buying at the prices that, you know, at the time made sense, but now maybe not so much, yeah. right? So we, we got good cost basis. We got um, structures in most of our deals that were very attractive. Um, and, and that's kind of how the, you know, the Rutherford story came about. I, I saw this deal. I got it immediately. I saw the, long, the long-term growth. I know the area well. Uh, it was a no-brainer in a sense. It's interesting. I ha- I've had these discussions with, uh, you know, Harley at Baker about right. the value of a larger scale development, right? Right. Because intrinsically, I think if you're the very first phase and you've got 10 other phases to come, that's going to be a construction zone for 10 years, right. right? So part of that says to me, well, it should be worth significantly less, right? right? Uh, than a one-off where you're plugging this one-off tower in where there's already this built-in infrastructure, right? right? So there's there's that side of it. But then also the side of it is when you get on that first phase and you're, you've got that discount and then the whole thing gets built up around you and it's all brand, everything's brand new. You've got right. this, you know, connected and there's, there's green spaces in between that does have a, right. you know, huge increase in value potential to it. So it's, all, it's kind of two sides that you, 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 can, know, you I, can look at. Fun, it, right? I, I thought the first phase, like the first part of what you said, uh, that's what I thought, like before I kind of underwrote the company and, beca- and the, and I remember I was invited to invest in like the first phase of Galleria. When they were releasing Block Five, yeah, they had like friends and family, and I think it was like nine fifty or nine seventy five a foot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "What? I'm gonna buy a unit that for the next exactly what you said, ten fifteen years is gonna be in the middle of the construction site. Why? Why would I pay? Why would I pay? Like, you know, I could probably buy it downtown at like twelve hundred bucks. Why would I pay that? Yeah, but then." What I didn't realize is that you have the ability to artificially create a market. Yeah. And the next, you know, even now, like uh, the leftovers of Block 5, whatever he's selling right now, they're under construction. But whatever he's selling, I think they're selling probably north to 1300 bucks a foot. Yeah. 
same phase, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and you have the, because they released block two and that was already an upwards pressure. So you got the time to your side so you can kind of dictate what the market is and it kind of carries you through, you know, because the developers has the interest to push and he controls the whole market. Yeah. So it kind of create this funny dynamic, but you're, yeah, I made that mistake once. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it's, an inter- it's interesting. I mean, I, I love that site, and I um, I spoke to, you know, I, I think yeah. I asked, you know, Ryan when uh, when they were thinking about launching it. He was asked me my opinion, right, right? right? And I'm like, oh, a thousand bucks a foot for the first right. phase. He's like, really? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, architecture is fantastic. You know, like yeah. it's just it's creating its own little city, right? right? So it's interesting. We even talked to to Peter Fried about it, right? Yeah, when yeah. Uh, when when he was because yeah, I think he put the original yes, assembly was, together, was, right? So. Yeah, quite interesting. So, so how's the um, you know with all the new legislation that's come into place, especially kind of uh, you know bans on foreign investment, right. uh, including that also covers land right. and development. How's that impacting you guys? I know the uh, the industry is obviously lobbying hard to to make sure that uh, you know I think it's what's the limit three percent, which is just yeah. Uh, I, I was talking. Are you guys to, worried about that? I'm or? not like I'm not to be honest. Like I'm not the guy to ask about it because I'm not worried about a lot of these. Things that to me are non-core, mm-hmm. um, that are more politically related versus reality correlated. I think there's enough creative people out there that can figure out a way to, mm-hmm. you know, solve that problem in a sense. Uh, but I'd say this: I was speaking to uh, to a REIT not long ago on, on on one of our things that we're doing right now, and and they were like, "We're not sure that even we can buy," <laughs> because we're like. We have more than 3% ownership that is not local. We don't know if we can buy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how stupid is that? (laughs) Like, is that, what are you you trying to do? Like in in a point of time where it probably has most, um, the least amount of liquidity in the market, you come up with this legislation that you don't even know what it actually means when you come up with it, that it has an impact that you haven't even considered. Nobody thought about it. And choke the liquidity even more. I don't think it's sustainable. I I was like shocked when I, because I was like, what? No, they're just like an equity investor. That doesn't count, right? It doesn't count towards, uh, you know, the the operating company that's owning the land, right? So I don't know. I'm hearing they're doing, you know, some type of- Good to hear. Yeah, you're not worried. Participating debt or, you know, they're moving the investors some way to- to, to, to make it I'm not as concerned. Qualified. Like we have, we have enough enough local capital sources that we're we're moving forward. But mm-hmm. it's not it's not. I'm not losing sleep over it. Yeah, yeah. So so tell us a bit about. And you, know, you, you kind of went over. You know, you're 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 looking to invest in in, in residential projects and with with local developers. But how are you going about? sourcing those developers and letting them know, hey, we're open for business, we want to partner, and how, and I guess the second part of the question is, how involved are you going to be in the development process? Are you just saying, okay, Castle Point or Almadev, this is your baby, we're here, you need the support, or you want to be at the table for every single decision? Well, for those who know, (laughs) we have a motto in the office, we don't do the work. <laughs> we partner with people that are way smarter than us in whatever they're doing. And I don't need to teach Alfredo or Jeff how to rezone a side and how to build a building. And I definitely don't need to tell Rafi how to phase a master plan community. <laughs> like these guys have done it yep. many, many times. Yep. They know it with their eyes closed. They're, the reason why we chose them is because they know it so well. 
um, we do provide value because our world is the capital side of things and we see things and we're um, we're more creative on the structuring side so if there's any way for us to create more value for the um, for our partnership then we will do that and we're proactive and we always have conversations and we're always uh, bringing ideas and sharing ideas with our partners on how to potentially improve things from a capital standpoint but not like on the actual operations, no, it's not not interested. I'm not as good as them in what they do, and and we are much better focused on what we do and 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 get to do what we do just bigger and better. And, and it would be much easier for me if I'll just focus on that versus telling my very smart and capable developer partners what to do. You know? <laughs> do you have a, do you have a sense that there's more money out there than places to put it? I've heard that before, that there's a lot of interest in Canada. You know, are, are, are you finding it difficult to find deals right now or? I'll tell you, it's, it's always a question of on a risk adjusted basis, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like um, it's a double edged sword in a sense that uh, when you think about like I just spoke to a friend of mine is like, yeah, we, there was a site on the market. We we were the winners of the bid. And you always ask yourself. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that I, that I was willing to pay the most? Like, well, yeah. what's that? Yeah, yeah. So um, when you buy a site, I think it's, there's always that a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely, you know, capital available for, for good deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is definitely harder to find good deals than capital. That's for sure. Um, and when you find a deal that is not so great, it's harder to find capital for it. Um, but by and large, when you find a good deal, you'll you'll find capital that is that's a fit for it. And I think, relatively speaking, globally, even with what's going on right now, I think the world has a lot of dry powder. And in Canada, we have a lot of dry powder. And I think I don't know what's going to happen in the coming month. And that like the thing we're tracking right now is like, you know, there's and Ben, you know it better than me. Like there's a bunch of launches of sales coming up, right? Um, and these sales are coming to market. Some of them because developers thinking, some few of them actually think that it's actually a good time to launch a project. Most of them don't have the ability to wait as much, right? As they can't see it another week, year. Like their interest mm-hmm. cost on the land eating away their profit, yeah. and they just have to meet the market. And my, you know, the things we're looking at is like what's going to happen if that wave of pre-con is not going to meet demand, what is that going to do? Is it going to flush it with a bunch of zone sites? Our lenders are going to say, you know what, guys, we'll give you another year, figure it out, and then we'll let's come back again. Um, like that's kind of the thing we're looking at, what's going to happen in the resale market, right? There's a lot of inventory right now sitting on the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like 30,000 closing coming in the, you know, in the next year or so, like yep. units. Assuming are, everybody gets a mortgage. Assume, <laughs> assuming everybody gets a mortgage. So far, you know, we, we thought there's going to be more of that. Yep. You know, the uncertainty was was the biggest factor that we thought it's going to happen, but it didn't happen in the most uncertain times. Um, by and large, even if, if things would go up from an interest rate perspective from now on, it's not going to be by that much from yes. where we are right now. Yep. So I'd say if they... If they could got a mortgage before, I'd say they probably can get a mortgage going forward, but who knows? Um, but the question I ask myself, if the resale market drops to a point where it doesn't make for any pre-con buyer to say, yeah, it's worth my spread. I believe in the growth story. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these projects don't 
don't get sold what what is happening at that point right like that's the thing we're asking ourselves now every time i bet against toronto real estate i was wrong (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not going to say that but i think there is a concern and there is a chance that things would not be as pretty for the next year to two years there might be some opportunities though there might be some buying opportunities of developers in distress yeah for us pick up some zoned sites yeah for us i think yes (laughs) i think generally speaking the majority of the class A sites are being owned by class A developers yes, in the city. That's right. And the class A developers in the city are going to be fine. Yes. They made hundreds of millions and billions of dollars over the past three decades, four decades. The banks have all the runway they need in the world for that. They got all the balance sheet they need in order to carry whatever it is. And if they make a little bit less money on a project, so be it. Yeah. Uh, it's the mid-sized and small guys that would not get that credit extended per se and may not mm-hmm. have the balance sheet or the investors' capital support to carry those these projects longer. Uh, and they may need to meet the market or there may be some challenge deals. But by and large, I, I'd say the core is... Yeah, it's it's, it's an inter- it's interesting market. I mean, obviously, from from my perspective, I I see some of the launches coming on, and it seems like the most successful launches that we've had so far have come at twenty twenty one pricing. Right? right, anyone that's tried to launch at Q one twenty twenty two pricing has had mm-hmm. you know significantly slow sales, if not devastating sales levels, right? right? That uh, that require an either a relaunch or right. significant discounts. And anytime you start offering these massive discounts, then, you know, the buyers look at you strange, right? right. So, so that's, you know, that's certainly an interesting. Plus, I mean, added to the pricing is center ice locations, right? right. You know, in times of uncertainty, people flock to center ice, yeah. so, you know, transit, being one of the big right. ones, yeah, and your right. sites are all on transit, right? The yeah, whether for your, your the Western Road matters, sites, you know? yeah, your Western <laughs> Road sites, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the the closing risk, that was, you know, back when I ran the same ran the same companies Jeannie used to. We won't we won't name them. Uh, the question I used to always get asked was, "Is there any closing risk? Any closing risk? Any closing risk?" Right? You know, the banks were always really concerned: is when these buildings come to completion, are these people able to get mortgages? Right? right? And this has been obviously. See that there's never been a period in my lifetime where interest rates went up eight percent and right. eight, eight different raises right. over a, a yeah. period of one year. Like right. no one would even built that into their stress test. If you right. had said, "Oh, I'm building in eight interest rate increases in the next right. year," like, well, people would have laughed in your face, right? right? right. Uh, especially when the Bank of Canada went out and said that we're keeping them low for a long period of time, right? right? So, um, but I haven't heard of a lot of problems with closings so far, right? I mean, that is always the issue is, is at what point does it become an issue? If I've got a hundred unit building and if I have five people that don't close, well, maybe that's not a problem. 10 may not be a problem, but what if it's 15 people that don't close, right? Then maybe I can't pay back my construction loan, Right. (laughs) Right. right? And is there inventory loans out there to take against that? inventory maybe i can rent it out and then wait for the market to come back i mean these are the things i keep running through my head right are we ever going to get to a point where the developers doing all their due diligence on all their buyers and they're they're coming back and they say go to their financial partners and say you know what i think 50 percent of the people are not going to close in this building right what do we do do we literally cancel all the the sales go out try to get permanent financing and we just run this as a rental building for 3 right. years and then in 3 years we go back out and try selling the units right, right. i think there's some creative solutions that right. that could happen 
But and people are turning more to the secondary mortgage market as well. We we know that. Yeah, yeah. I think people will find solutions. If you put down twenty percent equity into a project, (laughs) you're going to do anything and everything you can to close that deal. I'll say this: like I think, like the way we were looking at it, we were saying, um, you know, those projects that have completed calling twenty twenty two, right? The the ones that have like inventory for a while sitting on them. The some of them actually use that inventory loan strategy, which doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because you're effectively, you don't only have cost of equity burning your promote, you have also now cost of debt and yeah. carrying cost yeah. of, the, of the unsold condos yep. that runs at about 10%. So a lot of trouble. you have to believe that you're going to sell the condos like 20% higher than what market yeah. is next year yeah. in order to justify just the wait time, right? Yeah. So, and, and carrying cost. Um, the way we're looking at it is like these guys that have bought and closed in 2022, um, they were deep in the money. Right, they were, they were buying those condos for like eight hundred bucks a foot, mm-hmm. nine hundred bucks a foot, like five six years ago. They're good, yeah, and and they have twenty percent, right? So yes. they are, they're like their their exposure for not closing is like, you know, they're eight hundred. They bought for eight hundred. They like if they are leaving so much money on the table, yeah. right? Like they got their money in, they're closing, yeah. right? The question becomes, um, what happened when the guys that are meeting the market next year where yeah. the sales price have jumped. You know, they've jumped a massive jump between that vintage to, you know, next year's vintage where condos will start selling for 1200 bucks a foot, 1300 bucks a foot in the good locations. Yeah. These are not necessarily below market. They still have the 20%. They're still going to likely close because it's not that far off. But there is projects here in the city that were you know, the ones that were taken over by Crestford and were sold and are pretty much good to go in a year from now, they were selling for really high prices. Yeah. Curious to see what a, what investors that bought something for 1500 bucks a foot last year or a year before uh, would do when it needs to close this year. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. You yeah. know, that's going to be a challenge, right? Yeah. It was, it was the super cheap money and people expected that super cheap money to run on forever right so that's why they couldn't make those they were making those fifteen hundred dollar per square foot my yeah my the what i really worry about is those projects that launched in 20 uh, late 2020 early 2021 uh, even into 2022 that were fifteen hundred sixteen hundred even seventeen hundred bucks a foot for just a traditional product nothing special all right and yeah okay it's moss park Right. So in 2027 (laughs) is the value of the unit going to be above $1,700 a square foot. And if I was a betting man, I would say absolutely not. Right. But, but but if you you take the long view and you look at the history of Toronto, like I said, one of the benefits of being in the market for 30 years is probably we were pushing the envelope on pricing and King West at $300 a foot. And people are like, Oh my God, (laughs) I remember that. So I remember the shock of, you know, and and what we have behind us is policy as well. The government has publicly stated we are open to immigrants and to your earlier point, right? right? It's if you take the long view yeah, long long term. It gives you, you should have confidence. Long term, a market like Toronto would yeah. fix any mistakes you made on the yeah. buy. Yeah. yeah, But it is long term. Yeah. Uh, it is long-term. Just looking at the politics of this city and how difficult it is to get, get anything built, right? Every time I just see the, I go online and see the conversations, all these housing developers are greedy. They want to do this. They want to do that. You know, we don't want all this housing everywhere. I'm just like, this is, this is positive for values, right? right? Anyone, an investor just looks at this 
controversy around everything supply related and just has to say, this you know is what? great. This is this <laughs> is good news for my value. All this controversy, right? Because it's just we're just yeah. not going to get the amount yeah. of housing that we need built, even if we had uh, this crazy open environment where right. developers could do whatever they want. As people say, oh, developers can do whatever they want. You know, do we have that capital? Do we have the labor to right. build these buildings if we, we right. wanted? And and even would the developers? want to go out and flood the market with these units, right? right? That's the other question. If, if right. Even if they had all those ducks in a row, would right. they then go out and say, you know, I'm Lantera. I'm going to launch seven projects this year, right? right. Or would yeah. they just say, okay, let's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's calm it down. We're good for yeah. three projects a year. That's what we've always been doing. We're going to keep doing yeah. it that way. So it's always an yeah. interesting conversation to, to have on. Even if we, if the developers got everything they wanted, right. would they then go and flood the market with right. units? All right. I think we're so like there's so many things that makes this not a feasible thing in my right now. I want to be very careful. No. I hope you know I'm I'm not going to be very wrong in the foreseeable future, but I don't think that we can build the amount of unit that we need from an infrastructure perspective, from labor perspective, from all the things that we already know about the city and uh, let alone the approvals and the annoying side of it. Um, <laughs> but, but I think generally speaking that the, I think there's a bit of a change in that concept of like the, the bad greedy developers. Um, we, you know, and I hear across from all of our, our partners when they go and talk to the city um, used to go and propose a site and you would say, I think this is a 40 story site because you know we got a neighbor that has a 40 and there you approved 50 and then come no 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 30 max and <laughs> what's the point of that nobody knows but um but I don't think they get that anymore I think they would say more public realm yeah you know let's uh, bigger units can you do a little bit more AMRs like can you you know the city is a little bit more okay we get it we need density fine uh, but let's let's still be difficult where we can, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, and and ask for all these things. So, I think generally speaking, and and I think also the public view a little bit changed because they feel it, right? Mm -hmm. you, you feel it. You try to rent an apartment. We had uh, we have an intern that is um, that is finishing her school at London, and she's moving to the city to work for one of the pension funds, and she's. She's looking for apartments and nothing. And when she started the search, like a couple months back to the price that it is right now, it's like a world apart, right? Yeah. That's meaningful and that driven by supply and demand. And all the things, all the constraints you just described, fundamentally, it's good. And all the things that we're experiencing right now with the capital markets and interest rate and everything, fundamentally, are good from a supply and demand perspective because there's less supply more demand. So that's, but Jacob, good. okay. So, but do you see any storm clouds when you're looking long-term? Do you see any storm clouds on the horizon? Anything that you're keeping an extra special, you know, eye on and paying attention to? Uh, in Canada, we're good. You know, guys, <laughs> we're good. I got to tell you, uh, I, you know, like I said, I have family in other parts of the world. I have a lot of friends that live in various places in the world. Mm -hmm. We're good. Even global warming is playing to our advantage. So it's like, well, what what else can you ask for, right? Uh, I, I think we have a lot of very good things that are going for us in Canada mm -hmm. and in Toronto, especially. And as long as we'll be smart enough to put policies that would enable 
good hard working people to still afford to live here mm-hmm. um and, and service the city that we that we all like and and the the gap between the haves and the have nots are, is not going to be crazy um i think we're we're good i think that those are the things that could make this city not as appealing and, and you see kind of what happens with manhattan or with san francisco mm-hmm. where the gaps becomes a little bit too big yes. i think here we're putting the right policies in place um for that not to happen but i think we need to keep up pace of construction for sure so let's let's uh, we have uh, an opening in the city of Toronto for a new mayor. Are you <laughs> talking uh, about politics? Yeah. Are you worried about some of the uh, somewhat well-known NIMBY candidates that are out there, or do you feel confident that one of the other fifteen candidates that are throwing their name in the hat is that is that something that you and your your partner are having discussions about, or are you you know more long-term thinking? Um, I'd say that. You know, the pendulum always swings, right? <laughs> and now with the, you know, with the new bill, our approach is let's put everything we can. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's try to rezone as much as we can <laughs> because tomorrow is another day. Um, but I'd say by and large, I think even the, the politicians that are, oh, you know, yeah, this guy has a house behind a subway station or an LRT station and he doesn't want to have shadow on the house. Well, guess what? (laughs) You know, you live in a 9 million people metropolitan. That's right. You live on a subway or a transit line. You're going to have a high rise tower on top of that, you know, building on top of that site, no matter what, at some point. Right. So I think they realize the biggest problem here is affordability and that's driven by supply and demand. I think the world is hammering, the truth to them that even if they're NIMBYs and they don't want the height and they don't want, what what else are they going to do? Are they going to tell to their citizens that, oh, we need to uh, build affordable housing, but we can't. Um, you need to be able to afford to live here, but you can't. Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. What, what are they going to say to people? Like, yeah. they're going to have to build more buildings and that's always happened on density. Unless they're going to say, Fuck the green belt. We're building everywhere. <laughs> Fine. Then we're having a different conversation. But until then, you know, you know what's funny? It's funny about so Rob Burton, uh, mayor of Oakville, for you read his newsletters 15 years ago, he would brag if the population went down between sentences. He would <laughs> he would be so much against development. And then he realized that the flood was just too big. Right. The flood was gonna hit him and there was nothing he could do about it. So he changed his tune. Right. So instead of, but he's not, he's not pro housing no, he's not. everywhere. He's pro housing on the areas that are not going to affect the rich single family homeowners. So he's willing to upzone these sites in industrial areas and beside the highway. And so he's going full NIMBY on, uh, uh, full YIMBY on that stuff and, right. and being still against anything that's going to impact the low rise uh, single family homeowners. So it's kind of interesting how, you know, a NIMBY mayor has been kind of forced to change right. his tune. He's still not quite there, right. but at least he's allowing some, you know, right. high density housing. And I mean, Oakville's been gone, gone like, nuts in right. terms of the amount of product that's getting built there and right. and uh and obviously now with uh i'm not sure which bill it was the the maybe the last one that changed the parkland dedication fees right, right? so everyone's now looking at markham more right. than they ever had yes. before uh yes. because that was always the biggest biggest issue i mean, right. i've tried to do land valuations in markham and i come up with a number for the for the landowner and i say i think this is a good number 
and no one wants to buy it at that number. Right. And I'm like, how is that possible? Because I'm working off transactions that have already right. existed in the marketplace. Right. And then I go and look at all those transactions that have happened right. and nothing's been built on any of those high transactions, right? right. The only ones that have, been the, that have been built have been this massive developer that paid 15 to 20 bucks per buildable foot. Those are right. the only ones that got built right. and all these other one-off sites that sold for 60, 70, 80, $90 right. per buildable foot. They're still sitting there right. 10 right. years later, right? Yes. With nothing happening. So it's, right. it's always interesting to try to do my job and try to value the market when there's outliers on either side and you really got to get right. down further. But yeah, it's interesting that you guys are going big on Markham because that seems to be an area that more people are looking at now because of the recent changes in the, whatever the bill is, more homes, more yeah. people, more things. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th I think we're, I'll tell you, like, I think a lot of the things that we're doing, um, I'd say that we have like three main principles that we go by when we go and look to, inve to invest in any project. And I'd say the, the developer partner is kind of the f number one, right? We're saying we only invest with top tier guys that has tons of experience that have done it for decades. Um, and, and the Markham example is one of them. Like, you know, Alan Greenberg have done so much in the city. You know, it's, you know, it, it was a very, very sophisticated and structured deal and, and Alan, uh, and Barry and, and, and the Kerbal group, they they know what they're doing, and we felt very comfortable with that deal. And um, and and I think, you know, we're, we're looking for for that spread on residual value. Like we we need to buy things at you know 40, 50 buck, 40, 50 percent below what would be residual land value. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, in a market like that, you you're still okay. Right. Uh, but when things are normalized and stabilized, we're pro there's probably going to be somebody who's going to write us a big check to walk away because we're going to make so much money on the spread. It wouldn't necessarily make sense for us to stay for construction. We plan to, but we've seen in the city many times people were buying these beautiful sites at great cost basis and somebody else just say, well, thank you so much for your work. We'll pay you that much. And that made sense for them to walk away. You know, we, we've invested in a few projects like that. We were very happy to walk away uh, before construction starts. And, you know, if we get paid what we think we should. Um, so I think as long as we have great partners and we invest in great locations, like we, we don't, we've never went outside of Toronto core because a, I, I don't know it personally. Like I've, I live here. I know the more, I know what's the difference between one street to the other. Uh, I feel like it's a very local business and, um, and location matters in real estate. Location matters. Uh, it, you know, you can't go and, and sell a house in Southern Ontario for one and a half million. And, and then a year later, there's crickets there in the sales centers. And even if you try to sell it for 50% less in Toronto, it doesn't happen. Um, so it, it just, you know, location partners and, and price per, per foot from residual values that always been our guidelines and all of our sites, that's what it is. It's like transit oriented or core downtown, great partners, good cost basis. And that's it. Like there's no secret sauce. It's just basic fundamentals. I guess the question would be um, on an equity side, uh, you know, it's obviously it's not always easy to underwrite a partner. I mean, if they have... 15 completed buildings, but are you willing to take a chance on a guy in his second project that might turn into the, the, the massive developer in the future? Or are you just at this stage in Kin Capital, you are just, hey, major guys, major locations. At what point in time do you think, hey, we can afford to take a flyer on 
the guy that just left the big developer. Right. Right. And he's he's a super smart guy. You love this guy. You've known him for 10 years. You know what he's talking about, but he's starting his own thing. Right. right? Like yeah, that's always an interesting question yeah. that, that that I think about in terms of, you know, the the Graybrooks and the yeah. the Cranston Capitals and and when do they start branching out from their their core partner right. groups. Um I'll say this. I, I think at that point, like I think Peter got it. Absolutely right. Like, you know, aiming on the top. And and, there, and from our perspective, there's two reasons for that. Um, we're planning to take our vehicle at some point public in the Israeli market. And the story of our developers is the story that we're going to tell to the market. It's a much different story if we'll come to them and say, here's a portfolio of investments. We're investing with people that have decades of experience massive balance sheets. They've done it many, many times. Or we're going to say, oh, and we invested in a deal with a bunch of guys that started out. <laughs> it's just a different story to the market. And the second thing I think that is most important, and we kind of started, our thesis was always like that. We didn't know that this is going to happen to us right now. But we always said, if the music ever stops, it doesn't stop on the big guys. The banks didn't stop lending to the big guys. Yeah. You know, I'm sure when all the all of our partners, when they go to their banks and say, I need a land loan, unzoned, they get a land loan. Yeah. You know, despite all the stories that you hear out there, banks are closed for land loans, no more land. When you got a guy or a, or a group that has hundreds of millions of net worth, billions of net worth, they ask for a land loan, they get a land loan. Yeah. They ask for a construction loan, they get a construction loan. They, they need to put up guarantees, Put guarantees no problem. The challenge with the smaller guys is that they don't have that robust financial backing. It's, it's very challenging. Yeah. If they need right now construction financing, it's harder for them to get it. Nonetheless, I would say I, I'm, I have a lot of faith in the new generation of developers that is coming to the scene, bursting to the scene in Toronto right now. I think we had a, a long period of time, too long maybe, where we didn't have that because you, you had this big wave the big in guys, the 90s yeah. that all these guys were starting up and they were, you know, you know, basically taking all the talent and, it, you know, as a young individual, it wouldn't be worth your while to be an entrepreneur because you got paid so much by, by you know, by Eddie Sunshine or by, you know, by Michael and all these guys and they would take all the talent and, and they did the hard thing when the market was absolutely in trouble and they were resourceful and built massive businesses and rode the wave, uh, but they took the talent with them over the next two decades. You haven't seen a lot. And then you started seeing Center Court and then Marlin Spring. And then and then there's this new wave of, of young developers, super talented that are about my vintage, that are doing their own thing and they're brilliant and they're very capable and they've done the actual work for a lot of the bigger guys uh, for many, many years. So it's not like they don't know how to do mm -hmm. the work. They, they definitely do. And I think it's a matter of time until we'll, we'll be big enough on our own in, in, you know, in the market's view that we'll be able to say, yeah, hundred percent. Like we'll, yeah. We'll partner with these guy. We'll partner with that guy. That's, mm -hmm. That's interesting. Well, we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting close on time, but I know that, you know, obviously Jeannie's in the affordable housing space. Is there any plan in any of these mega projects to put in any affordable housing or are you uh, just, you know, whatever the municipality says the minimum amount is? That, that's what yeah, you I'd say like at the core, you know, you can suck and blow, right? The city cannot say, <laughs> oh, we want affordable housing, but pay us, 
double the amount of DCs, pay us all these levies, pay us, pay us everything, and then get us affordable housing. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the city um, needs to be at a place, and the municipalities and the federal government needs to be at a place where they realize the old world is gone. If you want to build housing, not only do you don't get to take money, you need to put in money. Yep. You need to support those developers. And if you want them to build more, help them fund it. Find creative structure. We're getting um, recently a few very interesting investment decks we've, um, you know, from people that are building affordable housing with municipalities and, and, and uh, uh, you know, provincial governments that are supporting that and start seeing how this business model works. Um, in the U.S., it was... You know, um, I remember Steve Roth was here from Related a couple of years ago for a Shulik um, event or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now he's building Hudson Yards, right? Like <laughs> arguably the most, you know, grand projects in the world. But he made his money building affordable housing in the U.S. Yep. Wow. Yep. Right? So he, he, that's how he made his money. Uh, Daniels are, you know, one of the biggest guys building tons of affordable housing anywhere they can. Um, and they find a way to also make it financially viable. There's a way, you know, Dream just came up with an announcement that they're going strong into, I think there's gonna be money to be made in that sector. I just think in a context of the city of Toronto, it just, they, I don't think they get it. I don't think they yeah. understand how the financial model work. Otherwise, why would they well, I mean, ask I think, for so much? I think, you know, the flavor of the month is let the private sector solve the affordable housing issue. Right. There's a role for the private sector to play to address a certain segment of affordability, which is not the deep affordability. Right. Um, but there's a reason why private developers don't build affordable housing, because you don't make money doing it. So it's very challenging. The governments need to step up. And there's an inherent limitation. And that's why certainly you'll be getting a deck from us with our innovative <laughs> right. new business right. model and right. and funding strategy right. around building, you know, um, and hopefully, you know, the government will start to support more than not for profits like right. our organizations and co-ops and other, right. you're right, they need to start, the old world is gone, we need to start yeah. thinking differently. The government certainly how seems to, to be making a lot of announcements for billions of dollars that they want to put into affordable housing projects, yeah, yeah. and then I'll see, you, you know, know an announcement every three yeah. months for a new project, which is like 40 units, yeah. and you're like, oh, Governments man. are great at making announcements, but their <laughs> problem is they can't deploy the money yeah. because the uh, the 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 uh, the entities like the the deployment vehicles don't exist in the numbers to uh, to deliver at the speed that they're promising. Yeah. Right. Even in the private side, right? How many private homes do we do we need to add? Never yeah, mind on the affordable. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy to announce great, it. Sounds great. great of course, we but, did, but sure. yeah, 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 yeah. And never mind labor shortages. I mean, there, uh, there's a yeah. whole. We're barely uh, building what like thirty, forty thousand a year. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, yeah. we built yeah. more homes in two thousand two than we did in in two thousand twenty two. Right. <laughs> And that's the thing that people always yeah. talk about. There's so much, so much is getting built. I'm like, yeah, you just weren't driving in Milton and Brampton right. and Oshawa and Whitby in 2002. Like the houses right. were just everywhere and they right. were 2,000 to 3,000 square feet and could have a family of three. Now right. the average unit size is 675 square feet, right? <laughs> right for, yeah. for high rise, uh, high rise tower. So we're, we're delivering, you know, less units, but also on a, way less bedrooms and significantly right. less square footage and than we that we had in the past right so right. we need to you know figure out a way to for the affordable housing providers the 
yourself, the, the Habitat for Humanity, the, those types of groups to integrate their units within a larger development project, right? Yeah. And I think there should be ways for the city to fund those things. And right. so that, and it also makes, I think it would make it better for all the development industry because people complain, oh, this tall tower. Oh yeah, by the way, there's seven floors of Habitat for Humanity in this project, right? They'll be right. delivering this many affordable housing. And right. that's just a great story to tell, right? right? Uh, and not just, oh, we want inclusionary zoning, you build it. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. When you, you do, do yeah. When and, you do and the, the court, it always falls on the, on the buyers, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and because the buyers are paying so much per foot, they need They're high rent. Yeah. And guess what? supply demand so they can get the rent so it becomes less affordable mm -hmm. all these things that they're doing right now are just causing more challenges from an affordability perspective right. and solving them um so until they figure out that you can go to the bank and say oh you know mr rbc can you please give me a construction financing my profit margin is zero because i have like 30 percent exactly. affordability <laughs> say no <laughs> Exactly. Thank you, but yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, so unless they're going to put their hand in their pocket and really um, be part of the solution, I don't think this is going to be uh, a thing. But you know, we've we've um, recently launched a you know we structured and we've uh, we've invested a, a portion of that uh, ourselves in a manufactured housing fund. Um, that this is effectively a great solution. Like you're you're buying houses. The house cost is like. 300 to 500,000. Yeah, it's secondary markets. Uh, but these are communities that are the most affordable product you can do. You can own a home in Ontario for that type of pricing. I think there, we need to have more of that. In the US, it's, you know, 7% of the population live in you know, in a kind of a context yeah. where you own the house and somebody else owned the land. Yeah. Yeah. land lease, um, yep. And here we, we have maybe less than 1%. So we, there is room to grow in those kind of niche areas where mm. you can create more housings that would be more affordable, but not necessarily in the core. I think the core of Toronto is not going to be affordable. I think it's not, it's not going in the direction that people think. We just need to be cognizant to not end up in a place like Manhattan or, or mm -hmm. San Francisco. But if you go anywhere else in the world, the concept of you living by yourself as a young professional in your, you know, 20s in cool location in downtown, this is over. Like this is not, if you find a one bedroom, you share it with a friend. If you find a studio <laughs> in King West, you're going to share, share it with a friend. Like I have my friends when, when they were in Tel Aviv throughout our 20s, they were living with friends. And it's not like they lived in nice condos. They lived in a, garbage can like they, that was like a tear down from the 50s that the landlord is not even bothering to fix because he has a lineup of tenants mm -hmm. coming into the units and they leave like three people in one bedroom it's it just this is where the market is mm -hmm. going it just we have to be aware of that the core is always you know not always but by and large for most people is not going to be affordable like you're not talking about owning a your place in Manhattan and in London and in New York, in, in San Francisco, you're not going to talk about owning your place in Toronto in 10, 20 years. It's not just not going to be there if you're not going to be a millionaire or you have like really wealthy parents. It's not going to be there. We need to find other solutions that are in the periphery that would be good enough to serve and be for the, the people that are coming from scratch like I did and would be still be able to play and contribute to this city. Well, that's, I think that's a great way to end the, the, the traditional question period. But we have at the end of each show, oh, wow. our rapid fire questions. <laughs> so we're looking for like, 
you know, one to, to 10 word kind of uh, responses to where uh, Jeannie and I will take turns kind of Whatever comes a- to the top of your you, mind, just say yeah, it. Just, just, that, that's just, just a good idea. Just <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I'll go first then, I guess. So there's a lot of controversy around the 15 minute city. Should having everything you need within 15 minutes actually be a policy goal? I think to have a fantastic city, you should. Okay. 2022 is one of the largest ever years for immigration in Canada's history. Are we bringing in too many people given our housing supply issues? No. We need more high quality, hungry immigrants to take this country forward. I'm I'm one of them. I'm not a um, unique story. A lot of my friends that I have have similar stories or their parents had the similar story. I think Every time I sit in a room in Toronto, like most people were not necessarily born and raised in Toronto. I think, I think it brings a lot of uh, high quality talent to our, to our industry that we are trying to do more of, but uh, absolutely do not stop that. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm actually a son of an immigrant as much as, you know, I'm right. the whitest, whitest guy around. <laughs> right. Still a son of an immigrant right. and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll stick to that. So, all right, here's a good one. Who's taller, you or Zev Mandelbaum? That's a good question. Let's <laughs> bring them on next time question. and we'll measure them both. I'd say you can ask that about me and every other Jew in the city. I say we're <laughs> You're all, you're all just about the same height? <laughs> we're all about the same height. It's a hard question to answer that. All right. Here's a more serious one. Do you think inflation is under control? Uh, I'll tell you, I'm not an economist, but the economists are like the weatherman. It's like, oh, tomorrow it's going to be sunny. Oh, Fuck it, it's raining again. <laughs> sorry, we didn't. Sorry, guys. We had, it's transitory. No, oops, oops. Hand, no, it's horrible, horrible. So, um, so just don't watch. The I, I don't know. I don't know if it's it's under control. I have a feeling that the sentiment. It takes time for things to to go down. Like oil and gas prices are going down. General sentiment in you know in the U.S. and Canada is like people are not hiring more. They're laying more, becoming more lean. There's this thing is doing its thing. It just takes time, not smart enough to tell when and what, but I think overall we're moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we talked talk a little bit about this in the, in the regular section, but we'll, we'll, we'll get your, your very quick response to this. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being really worried, how worried are you about new condo closings in Toronto in 2024? Uh, five. Five? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's the number one reason you're not active on social media? Uh, I, I have only LinkedIn. Um, that's the closest thing I have. Social I'm with media. you on that. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I don't, I was never, it was never my thing. I don't have Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or any of these things. It's just, it's just it's not pro- my thing. You We're know? too busy. It's probably a good idea. I, I, I've been just getting bombarded. I'm bringing it on myself. I've been, yes, tro- I've been trolling do. some of the anti Brad Bradford people. So there's right. a lot of people that really dislike Brad Bradford, which is crazy to me. The guy's an urban planner. He right. brings on bike lanes. He supported right. modular housing. So it's just kind of funny how people yeah. grab onto someone and just decide that they, they hate them for one vote out of right, 25 right. that they make in council. Right. Anyways, off, off that was off, uh, off beat. So, okay, here's, here's the question. Here's the, here's the rapid fire question. Sure. What are your thoughts on inset bedrooms with no balconies? Ban them or let consumers decide if they want them? I think the market should dictate. I don't think, you know, I, when I, um, 
when I used to live in the Shangri-La, we didn't have a balcony. I lived there fine. It wasn't like in the summer you wish you had it, but the reality is 10 months out of the year, it's unusable for condos. The amount of wind. Exactly. It's not yeah. like you can sit and chill in March <laughs> on your balcony. Yeah. What it end up being is end up being additional storage. Storage, yes. For all these owners. <laughs> it, so, okay, so you want more storage. What about all the unsold lockers that you have in your basement? And use that instead of your balcony. In a city like Toronto, it's definitely not a necessity. The market should dictate its thing. Go outside. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> That's what I always say. That's what I always say. Yeah. All right. Question number eight. ESG, is it a fad or a must-have consideration? There's a big wash. I'm not a big... I don't like to bullshit. I was like, <laughs> I'm big on social impact. I'm, give, I'm, I'm big on giving back. When I got here, people from my community helped me come up. I wasn't always in a place where I, you know, was able to support. We had help. We're doing everything we can to give back, and we're giving back to all these charities and non-for-profits. And I'm and I'm co-founders of of you know the real stories, which is going to be sending kids from uh, unrepresented groups to to schools in real estate to increase diversity. Like I'm doing all these things, but all these. Yeah, I want this green. I want this. It's just not. It's not feasible in a market like Toronto. Again, if they if they want it done in a proper way in the residential market, it needs to be um, in a way where the government support. Mm -hmm. You can't financially justify it. Um, and, and kudos to guys like Taz that are doing all these great things that they're doing and being able to work with that, right? You need a certain type of capital to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you're building apartment building, you should definitely go that way because long-term that would pay off. If you're planning to own an apartment yep. building for 50 years, you should definitely do that. That would yeah. be financially making sense for you to put a little bit more money up front. Uh, but for the guys who are building condos, they're selling it to the next guy. They yeah. don't care. The reason why Toronto condos are not the top quality from a finish is because there's a lineup of buyers for, by and large, like historically, there's a lineup of buyers to buy those condos. The developers sell the condo and walk away. Mm -hmm. Unless there's long-term liability or ownership of that, I don't see that happening in a mm -hmm. big way. But I think overall, the world is moving in the right place where it's the good things are being mandatory. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, what you should have done, now you have to do. I think that's the right way to go. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit more than 10 words, but. <laughs> sure, <I'm talking. laughs> should we build more highways in Ontario? <laughs> I'd say we should make the city, we should build the city infrastructure not around cars, but we should build it around public transit. Going back to affordability, and all these things that we talked about, and we need to build cities and communities that are more amenitized, that people would have everything they need, that they wouldn't have to drive anywhere. Where I grew up, we didn't have, like in the community, we didn't have any car. Like you could walk you anywhere. Need it. And it's a better environment for the kids, it's a better environment for the families. I think we should just start thinking about getting out of this model, of the suburban, you know, outreach and just find a way to use less cars and build more public transfer that would be easier for everybody to move around. Great. All right. Last Final one. question. 
In 2023, are you buying or selling? Buying. <laughs> all right, that was an <laughs> easy one. one <laughs> all right, so well, I, well, ask Jeannie first. Uh, if s- someone wants to get in a hold of you uh, about your initiatives, where do they where do they find you? Where can they find me? Should I give you my email address? Or we have a holding page for our website, crosswalkcommunities.com. Um, and you could reach me at, uh, there's an email on there, but jshim at crosswalkcommunities.com. And stay tuned. We're uh, working on a potentially a couple of pilot projects. So fingers crossed. We'll see. Awesome. Awesome. So Jacob, where do they, where do they, where do they find you? Not on... Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> oh, you're on LinkedIn, no Instagram, but where do they, where do they grab you? Well, they can find me on LinkedIn and probably most people have my email or my phone number and <laughs> they know they can go to our website and find us up. Yeah, you're the, you're the, you're the social butterfly. I know if I go to uh, an event, you'll be there and be, uh, be ready to chat about what's happening in the market. So again, appreciate both you guys being here and that's a wrap. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, guys. It's a pleasure meeting you.